Hi everyone, this is Marsha, and I'm the director and founder of the Brooklyn Caribbean Literary Festival. I'm thrilled and elated to announce the birth and launch of our brand new podcast, CocoPod. Consider the aromatic CocoPod and how, after carefully ripening under the Caribbean sun, it generously offers up its rich fruit in due season. CocoPod by BCLF aims to provide a similar delight. Each episode is a seed, a nugget of an original Caribbean story told in the voice of its writer. Each story, an infinite gift by the offshoot of an ancient griot tradition. As a whole, Caribbean stories are like a mighty tree whose branches extend, offering shade and comfort wherever her children settle. From my team and the legion of Caribbean writers behind us, we bring to you the warmest of welcomes. Never heard Poppy play the Hawaiian guitar. I never heard Poppy play the Hawaiian guitar and experiences it caused big hardback men to halt at the crunch of a handjack moment in an all fours card game. Jaded women to rise from the fumbling laps of drink-sotted men and broken-nosed barmen to pause in their rinsing of glasses in basins of grey water, in those wrought iron balconied upstairs places facing the docks along South Quay, where he and his Hawaiian guitar spent whole unbroken weekends after he had pocketed his tally clock pay envelope on Saturday mornings. But then, there was a whole lot I didn't know about Papi, where he lived, whom he lived with, what he liked or didn't, were just a few of the mysteries of my childhood. So, when I heard him eulogize at his funeral service 31 years ago today as the finest player of the Hawaiian guitar in town, I was both surprised and not at all surprised. It wasn't that I didn't know anything about Papi, it's just that what I did know was gleaned solely through sparse but careful observation, knowledge from the tiniest seeds of clues scattered around my world. Some of the things I knew firsthand, the domestic control he exercised over us, even while seldom present in person, didn't help me to judge him in a balanced way when I was a child, but today, I'm not going to weigh and measure him. I guess the Almighty, or maybe St. Peter, did the pluses and minuses of Papi's life long years ago, as he approached the judgment seat, brown fedora in hand, seeking the final verdict on his 68 years. I put my money on St. Peter doing the job. I don't think Pappy would have warranted a personal audience with the Almighty, with whom he'd been conflated in my mind in my very early years, any more than he would have been known as an individual human being by his august employer, Mr. Kennedy, of William Kennedy and Company, import and export, who, I suppose, was like a god in the universe of Pappy's work. Papi's job at Kennedy's was to go on to the docks when the ships came in and to check the company's landed cargo 
and also do the same for cargo going out, import and export. I never saw what came in. We girls were screened from contact with that world where, it was reported, women tossed back their heads and laughed loudly with men who whistled and called out to them, the men guiding the massive rope-wrapped pallets swinging from cranes on the ships lying alongside. But I did have a first-hand knowledge of what went out since I was often at the Kennedy and Company warehouse. As the eldest, it fell to me to go to Pappy's workplace on Saturdays, to seek him out and wheedle him into sending some of the contents of his pay envelope back to Mammy, who would be waiting at home in Belmont, anxiously calculating in her head how the hoped-for $15 could be spread among her string of waiting creditors to keep all reasonably happy and in check for the coming week. Dressed up in last Easter's church dress, I boarded the bus as it moved sedately through quiet residential Belmont and disembarked in Lower Charlotte Street, just where the bus puttered to a crawl, edging its cautious way through the central market's overflow of vendors, their fruit and vegetables, fish and flesh, the perfume of ripe pineapple and the stench of hot animal blood mingling in a single intake of breath. I sauntered along Marine Square, so fascinated by the busyness of commercial life that I lost all sense of purpose and allowed the tide of swaying women balancing on their heads big round split bamboo baskets perched on twists of cloth and men transporting handcarts of boxes of goods from wholesale to retailers to sweep me along at their pace. I sidestepped beggars, women with cupped hands extended, squatting on the pavement, long skirts drooping in modesty between their knees, faces half-hidden by thin urinies, draped across their noses, from which hung large silver filigree nose rings, and men who were ratty-beard and ragged, barefooted and dirty, downcast and aggressive, subdued and loud. All this and more overlaid by a cacophony of sound, loud calls competing with clanging bicycle bells, the abrupt blare of car horns, the raucous shouts of donkey cart drivers. As I passed the Cathedral of the Immaculate Conception, I made sure to make the sign of the cross across my chest to invoke good fortune in my quest. From the bright white glare of the pavement, I peered through the deep shade of the overhanging upper floor balcony into the even darker interior. For a long while, I could make out nothing. Then jute brown crocus bags emerged in soft focus and serried ranks, wooden pillars rose to support the story above, and I could just pick out, way in the back, a platform on which was a wooden desk, a chair, and a man's pale face like a mist-placed moon floating above the khaki shirt. This man was the first of those I was dressed in press on Saturdays. You're looking for your father, he called out, and I nodded in embarrassed agreement. He then turned his face to make a last quarter face to shout into the darker 
recesses. Jimmy still there? At this I stopped breathing, crossed my fingers, and said a silent prayer, for if I was late, late through dawdling, and if the answer came, no, Jimmy done gone already, indicating that Papi had picked up his pay and left, that would be a disaster for us in the coming week, and how would I explain to Mammy why I had failed to do what she had sent me to do? But not this time, for today, just today, I will remember Pappy still being there and him coming from that back space where he was doing whatever mysterious thing the tally clocks do when not on the docks. He is moving slowly and fluidly towards me, wiping his hands in a white handkerchief that he's looking at intently, not pausing as he folds it first in half, then in quarters, into a neat, deliberate square, edges and corners perfectly aligned, then folding over a corner to be the opposite one, making a fat triangle that he pats and flattens and is already placing with a straight palm to avoid it creasing into a back pocket by the time he gets to me. He's bending over for me to plant an unwilling but dutiful peck on his cheek. The sickly scent of tobacco rising from his pores, cancelling out, for that moment, the pervasive, unidentifiable, dusty smells of that gloomy cavern. We stand facing each other, each waiting for the other to say something first. Mommy, send me for the money. I... Unschooled in tact and diplomacy, break the spell. And you wouldn't come to look for your father otherwise, he challenges. For years and years, I replayed that scene just so. Setting, the warehouse. Characters, father and girl child. Situation, girl child requesting child support from father. And I wonder today whether I had been too simplistic, too judgmental in my reading of him all those many painful Saturdays of long ago. In that scene of the past, it isn't just Pappy and me standing there, standing there with us, in us, with the people we thought we were, and the people we thought we should be. I was girl child, yes, but also convent girl, and so I was divided between two worlds. The one that contained the expectations and standards of the chaste world of Irish nuns and their ideal students, my French Creole plantation owning and merging class schoolmates, and the less privileged underworld of my own real life. As to Papi, at work, he was a tally clerk, at home, rarely visiting father. And there was also a secret life that none of us but home was privy to. Now I see that when Pappy and I encountered each other on Saturday mornings, we were in the gladiatorial arena of malehood in the mid-20th century when role models were Jack Palance, Humphrey Bogart, and John Wayne. 
So when Papi was walking towards me, he was walking towards a camera from long shot. He had a role to play, that while moving to tight close-up, he was trying to show that he is man. He is man, to be recognized as such by a visible and invisible audience, and maybe above all, by himself. But back then, as I stood within the warehouse of William H. Kennedy and Sons Marine Square, Port of Spain, I understood nothing, only that my mother had sent me to my father, and I was being deflected by his challenge, that I wouldn't come to see him if it were not to get money from him. It was a challenge I couldn't take up, because it had a shape and size and facets and angles beyond my comprehension, and I didn't know how to deal with it at any level, joking or serious, stated or as implied. I hung my head, ashamed that it was indeed so, that I wouldn't come to look for my father unless I'd been sent for money, and that he had drawn that shameful ingratitude of mine and of the whole tribe of us dependents to the attention of his watching and listening audience of fellow men who themselves had women and children to contend with. Papi throws off that pose and takes on the responsible proud father one, saying, Come over and say good morning to Mr. Defoe. That is the Moonface's name, Manuel Defoe, and he's intent on spiking squares and rectangles of paper to a board of protruding nails behind his desk. I say, Good morning, Mr. Defoe, and he, pausing in his rhythmic paper spiking, says, So what happened? You got too big to go, me Uncle Manny, now. Come and give me a kiss, child. Child tiptoes and leans forward to brush the roughly shaped cheek with her lips, and she can't Wait to surreptitiously turn her head and with seeming casualness wipe said lips against the stiff green organdy of her puff sleeved arm. Papi calls out into the darkness, Ola, come here and see my daughter. Pepsi, Joe, and, Sh and Sunny shuffle out, and one says, But she getting bigger, Jimmy? And the other one asks, So this is a bright one? And Mr. Defoe calls over, ha, she must be get the good looks of the brains from the mother. And they all laugh at this familiar joke that big people are always making on one another. Putting his arm around my shoulder, Papi pulls me to him. My face is against his scratchy brown serge pants. And I move closer in so as not to face the gaze of the men, because I am ashamed under scrutiny. I suspect they are saying something else under those words, and I can't guess at its hidden meaning, and I'm not sure who, if anyone, is supposed to answer. The <laughs> fades as Pepsi Joe and Sonny disappear back into the dim interior of the warehouse. Mr. Defoe resumes his paper spiking, and Pappy moves me towards the rows of sacks, his arms still around my shoulders, my two steps matching his one. At the first row, he rolls over the loose sacking at the top of the nearest bag. At that slight disturbance, a mustiness dislodges from the sack. My hand reaches in, and I take a handful of large seeds, dull, rough, Ovals, and I close my fist and rub the contents together. And 
as the full fragrance bursts out, I put my nose deep into my palm and inhale an intoxicating mystery. Something like vanilla, but a vanilla that has journeyed through deep forests, dank leaves, slithering life, absorbing darkness, moisture, heat, decay along the way, complicating its innocent, bland sweetness. I don't know where tonka beans come from, how they grow, where they are bound, what is their use. I only drink in the beans' enigmatic essence. I drift on to another bag to smooth the shiny dark beans whose cloying scent I know from comforting drinks on rainy nights, the thick, oily, welcome embrace of cocoa beans. These I rub, squeeze, and inhale too. They leave a trace that make my palms glide, frictionless along each other, silky smooth, soothing. We move to the last row, the thrill of forbidden pleasure, an adult's only pleasure, the spiky aroma of coffee beans tickling high up in my nostrils like a sneeze that won't come. Rooted there, I bury my nose into first one handful, then another, astonished at the richness and complexity of scents and sensations that have come from such undistinguished, dull, hard scraps. Are not seeds just dropped and discarded, scattered and strewn from living trees who carry on year after year producing these end products, of their more attractive floral displays, or so my child's mind runs. I squeeze, I rub, I inhale, transported in time and space, lost in my own world of the senses. The cathedral clock strikes the Angelus. Everything is suspended as the loud metallic clang of clapper on bell rim fills the air, my head, my chest, with each of its heavy strikes. Bang! 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 Pause. Four cycles of three, then a pause, followed by twelve sustained strikes. The sound lingers, vibrating the air and the ear for long moments after, and as it fades, it is as if a spell has been broken and the true world has been revealed. Everything springs to life in a changed direction. The bells signal the end of the working week for Pappy and for everyone else in town. And I am jolted back to Saturday in the Kennedy and Sons warehouse. Pappy is anxious to go, to meet up with the boys, to start his other life, free from duty to work and family, and I must get back home to Mammy. We stand there together, he wanting to rush away, I wanting to detain him, for I have not yet got what I came for. But I cannot ask again. Pappy has just treated me to a little distraction for my enjoyment, and I cannot bring myself to be crude and remind him of what I really came for. He gives every appearance of having forgotten why I am there. He glances at his watch. 
I look down at the grimy cement floor. My palms are sweating with the fear that he has indeed forgotten, and I will have to say it aloud again, will have to say that I have come to visit him, my father, only to get money. Pepsi Joe and Sonny come out of the darkness and go towards the long, stout, heavy wooden bar that slot into the iron brackets when they close the wide front doors, barricading us inside. They look towards Pappy and me, waiting. Pappy now seems to remember the purpose of my visit. Standing an arm's length from me, he draws from a back pocket a worn leather wallet, and he extracts one by one, drawing out each note into a symphony. A five-dollar bill pause, another five-dollar bill, longer pause, and finally, with a flourish to the mute crash of cymbals from the soundtrack, a third five-dollar bill. He fans the three bills out, a gambler with a royal flush, and with the faintest of nods, indicates that I should put my palm out. Into which one, two, three, Five-dollar bills are placed flat and then folded, my hot, damp fingers folded by his cool, dry ones, over the limp, many-times-used paper. I untie my handkerchief, place the notes in the middle, tie all in a double knot, and loop one loose end through my waistband, knotting it securely in place. He bends his head for my parting cheek peck. I deliver then turn and run out of the doorway, leaving my father until another Saturday. I set off along Marine Square, from which life has drained, save for women squinting in the sharp white light, spilling out of the cathedral after their Angelus devotions. As I move my palm across my face to make the sign of the cross in gratitude for answered prayers, the essence of the crushed seeds invade my nostrils, and I feel a strange excitement and lightness. Puppy strides off in the other direction, to the wrought iron balcony upstairs clubs opposite the docks on South Quay, to meet up with the boys and to play his Hawaiian guitar, to the stupefaction of hard-drinking, hard-gambling men and the adoration of soft, carefree women, reeling them in with his steel-stringed vibration, which I shall never hear. We hope that you enjoyed this episode. Please take a moment to follow CocoPod and turn on your notifications so that you don't miss new stories when they drop. One last thing. Caribbean stories and Caribbean writers need our help. Show your support by sharing and downloading this podcast as far and as widely as you can. Buy their books, support independent bookshops, and request Caribbean titles from your local libraries. Remember that a rising tide lifts all ships. Give thanks. For more Caribbean storytelling goodness, Follow CocoPod and BCLF Always Lit on all major podcast platforms. <laughs>